our text is a familiar one, so let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. We started a kind of unique series last week called Silent Night, and it asked the hypothetical question, what would have happened if Jesus hadn't come to earth? If that night really had been quiet, if nothing had taken place in Bethlehem, if it was just like any other night, what would the implication be? What would the impact be for the whole world? And how would it affect some of the um, key people that we know so well from these accounts? Now, last Sunday we saw it from the perspective of Israel, uh, which would have been just like any other nation in the uh, dustbin of history. They would have just disappeared after they were conquered and taken into captivity in two different places. Um, We wouldn't know about them. We wouldn't talk about them. The world wouldn't care about them this morning. Um, There wouldn't be the conflict that we see in the Middle East. All of that, none of it would have happened if Jesus hadn't come. They would just be another nation. This morning, we're going to look at Joseph and Mary and what their lives would have been like if that angel hadn't appeared to each of them saying, uh, your lives are about to change. And there's going to be a baby that's going to be born. And uh, the Lord is asking you to be the heavenly parents of the Savior of mankind. You know, how we respond, and what this study is going to kind of show is how we respond teaches us how the Lord and what he looks for in those he blesses. What, What is God looking for in our lives this morning? What is he desiring for us that he sees in us? And then what happens once we yield our lives to him, that, that'll give us tremendous insight into the extent to which the Lord wants to work in our lives. So let's read these seven verses this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to really give us some insight now into his word and some, some fresh discernment into a passage that we know really well. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone was on his own way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, who was a doctor and knows details, gives us a lot of specific information in those first three verses to provide a historical concept on what is happening here. And we learn, if you look back at the verses, that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, but it wasn't because of a regular event that happened each year like Passover or, or some kind of festival of the law. This was, this was a unique event, and in this case, a secular leader named Caesar Augustus, who was the first emperor of Rome, so he was really the most powerful man on earth, he declares that there's going to be a census. They're going to take count of all the people that live in the world at that point. And that was an issue for the Jews, not only because they uh, resented the Romans for occupying Israel and being a military presence in the country, but also because censuses, did I say that right, censuses? That'll work. 
um, they were forbidden by Jewish law. So there's a two-pronged problem here. The fact that the Romans are there and the fact that the Romans are doing something and requiring something of them that is forbidden by their law. Now, historians say that the people started to openly revolt about this and it became so bad that it looked like there was going to be an insurrection until one of the high priests said, no, we've got to stop this. This is going to be a problem. But there was still a group up in the north part of Israel uh, led by a man named Judas of Galilee that, that created a stir and still continued to kind of revolt. Um, and out of that was formed a political group called the Zealots. So this was, this was not a quiet time in Israel. It's not a calm time in Israel. There's turmoil, there's conflict, there's resentment, there's a stirring of the people. And Joseph and Mary now have to follow what's being said in this very extraordinary situation in their nation. They have to leave what's comfortable. They have to go to a different place at, at what seems to be, based on the information, the worst possible time. And I tried this week to imagine some of the conversations that they were having. Try to, try to anytime we read Scripture, whether it's Psalms or uh, the New Testament Gospels or the Gospel, you know, when you get into the epistles or whatever it is, try to infuse yourself into the situation. Try to place yourself in the scene. So, so be a fly on the wall and listen to the conversations. Mary, should you go? Is this the right thing to do? Well, we've really got to register together because we're going to be married. And they were betrothed, which is like between engagement and marriage. You're, you're kind of uh, starting to be married in the law site, but you're not married physically. But, but this is kind of more serious than engagement. So Mary really needed to go because she's going to be married to him. So, Mary, should you make this trip? You probably shouldn't travel. It's very late in the pregnancy. When you're late in your pregnancy, you really shouldn't travel. And they've got to go miles and miles and miles. And Joseph probably, you know, doesn't certainly want them to be separated, especially after what the angels told them. But there's the strain of this, this trip with apparently no advance arrangements. I've never known why that's so, why they didn't have a place to stay. So, Maybe this was sudden, maybe it was last minute. We don't really know. And they're dealing with the increased tension of rumors and speculation in their little town, and I'll tell you how small Nazareth was in a minute. The, the, the tension of this unplanned, kind of hard-to-explain pregnancy, and they're telling people maybe about the angel, but people are looking at them with side-eye going, yeah, okay, we get it. So, so they're dealing with that, and then their family certainly wanted them probably to stay close. They're still teenagers, and, and the moms are going, well, what happens if Mary goes into labor? And Joseph, what are you going to do? You don't have a clue. And you know, I mean, you just imagine, right, all the different things that are going on. But it's interesting, isn't it, that there is not one moment of hesitation in Joseph and Mary going. Despite the personal inconvenience, despite the nervousness about the pregnancy, despite the uncertainty of the whole situation, if you look in the text, and you can look at all four Gospels, the main accounts are in Matthew and Luke, there's, there's not one place where we see them hesitating to make this 80-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Probably took them about four to seven days, depending on how fast they could walk. Mary probably, historians say, probably walked most of the way. We have the Christmas card picture, right, of her kind of side saddle on the donkey looking all comfortable and refreshed. Do you know how hard it is to get on a horse 
when you're not pregnant, right? So imagine being nine months pregnant and trying to climb up on a donkey. That, it's probably not the case. She probably walked most of the 80 miles. And all the while they're doing this, they're trusting the Lord in his unusual plan. Now, that raises a very important question for us, and I want you to write some things down this morning so we can kind of interact with the text. But, but one of the questions that comes out at the outset is, how do we react when plans change? How do we react when plans change? Do we fight it, even if it's unjust and wrong, and we know that we're getting the short end of the stick? Do, do we fight that, or do we trust the Lord that no matter what's going on, that he'll protect us and work through the situation. See, what we learn from Joseph and Mary is that how we react when plans change reveals the depth of our trust in the Lord. How we react when plans change reveals the depth of our trust in the Lord. Now, when we've been seeking the Lord and when we've been calling on Him and asking Him to move and maybe we've been praying specifically about a relationship or about a new job or about moving to another city or some kind of situation where, where we know the plans will change. Now, when we do that, it becomes much easier when the Lord moves because then we're like, well, I've been praying for that. and I'm thrilled about that. The, the Lord answered the prayer and it works. But that's not always the case, is it? We're not always in control of the change. So one day you show up to work and you find out that your job is taken away. You've been downsized, or you've been fired, or you've been let go, or however they want to couch it. Either way, you're not going back to work tomorrow. And that can push us into depression and self-doubt. It can erode our confidence and, and maybe cause us even to question, Lord, what are you doing? Or maybe you find out that a spouse has been unfaithful. Or a, a relationship, a marriage that's already been fractured, it's coming to an end, and that completely alters your plans and your dreams, and, and maybe it overwhelms you. It certainly would overwhelm you with sadness, and maybe you start to feel defeated. Or maybe the changes that you learn you have a major illness, or that a parent is dying, or that a child is not walking with the Lord. There are so many other scenarios we can lay out. The point is, those challenges, those changes can plunge us into serious turmoil. And the danger at that point is how we respond in terms of our faith. So, so really, the only question in this thought is, does it drive me toward the Lord, where I want to abide in His presence and live in His strength, and, and somehow, Lord, you got to help me. I want to fully depend on you, even though I don't know what's going on. Is that where it drives you, or option two, because there's no middle ground? Does it drive you toward the Lord, or does it drive you away from Him? where you start to doubt his plan and you start to question his faithfulness and you get a little bitter and upset and uptight and, and, and your heart is just kind of stirred in the wrong way. See, this is the difference between a contented faith that doesn't know all the answers but trusts him anyway and a discontented doubt that won't accept anything but all the answers and in those answers, you only want the ones you approve of. It's a huge difference, and yet the line is very fine. 
Am I going to be contented in the Lord? Am I going to trust the Lord no matter what? Am I going to put my confidence in him? Am I going to hope in the Lord and pray and seek his face and rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him? Or am I going to get in turmoil, strife, anxiety, fear, doubt, and frustration? And Lord, come on, you told me you'd lead me. You told me you'd give me answers. I want the answers, and they better be answers that I approve of. And we may not say that out loud, but it's there. It's inside. Think about Joseph and Mary. Come on, infuse yourself. Make yourself them. They already had their world rocked by the messages of the angel. Now they've gone from engaged teenagers who are just preoccupied with their wedding to engaged teenagers who have been chosen by the God of the universe to not only have a baby, but to have a baby who will become God in flesh, the Savior of all humanity. No pressure there, right? I mean, as if it isn't enough. But when we look at the text in Matthew 1 and 2, and I encourage you to read that later, when we look at this text in Luke 1 and Luke 2, there isn't one second of doubt or hesitation that they're going to do anything but delight in this change. You say, well, what about Matthew 1 when Joseph wonders whether he should send Mary away because he doesn't want her to be embarrassed and he knows it's a bad situation? Remember, that was after he found out about the pregnancy, but before the Lord came and said, Joseph, this is okay. This is of the Lord. After that, not a moment, not wavering one inch, not questioning, not doubting, not living in fear. They just go. And they go to Bethlehem, and the baby's born in a stable, and they're visited by strangers who broadcast the news to everybody, and then they have to flee to Egypt because the king of Israel wants to kill their baby. And there's not one moment of hesitation. Now you say to yourself, and I've asked this for years, why Joseph and Mary? Why did the Lord call them to fulfill this unbelievably difficult, life-transforming assignment? Well, if we're going to see it through our hippo, uh, uh, hypocritical, our hypothetical situation, right? Remember our hypothetical, what if Jesus hadn't come? If we're going to see it through that, we have to conclude that without God's plan, we never would have heard about Joseph and Mary. We wouldn't know about them at all. They'd just be two incidental people in history who didn't experience anything great. And that's such an important thought this morning that, that we need to understand Without the Lord at work, we just live in the mundane. Now, an unbeliever, a skeptic might say, well, that's pretty exclusive. And that's pretty pejorative that that if I don't have God, that my life is just going to be mundane. The fact is, that's reality. I, I saw an example of this a couple weeks ago. Our family was walking through the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago Beautiful. Boy, that's a beautiful hotel. Very classic, very vintage, expensive hotel that, that has um, a beautiful uh, lobby that has uh, ornate artwork and frescoes and a big sitting area, and there's a bar there. And we were just kind of walking through it. Many people have stayed there, many famous people that we would know. And I sat uh, kind of outside the lobby looking into this great hall. And I didn't intend really to people watch that night, but I just started to because I love to do that. I love to just sit in places and watch people. You ever do that? 
watch how they talk, watch how preoccupied they are, watch how they're yelling at their kids and all that kind of stuff. So I just, I just sat there at a little bit of time. I thought, I'm just going to watch people. And what struck me, and I, I was not being critical. I didn't have a critical spirit. I was in a good mood. But I was so struck by the shallowness of it all. People drinking and, and talking really loudly to try to impress the people they're with. There's always one guy who's talking like 10 times louder than everybody else. Like you'd hear him out on the street. Ah, you know, he's just full of alcohol. And, and you know, people were talking and, and drinking and, and probably taking what they consider to be really important cell phone calls or acting like, well, i got to take this. Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. Like this is some kind of, you know, important call. And as I sat there and watched that, I thought to myself, at the end of the night, what do they have to show for it? Now, more than likely, there are some important business deals being made that probably won't matter in 10 years. There are probably some compromised values that are being done for the sake of acceptance. Maybe there's even going to be some vows that are broken by indiscretion, hoping nobody will find out because you're away from the spouse and whatever. And most definitely, there was a whole lot of money being spent. I don't know what a night of the Palmer House is worth, but it's probably like my mortgage. So here's this mass of humanity, and as I'm sitting there, again, not critical in my spirit, just, just watching, the word that really I heard in my heart and mind was the word empty. It's all empty. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. Now, if there had been no Jesus, Joseph and Mary's lives would have been empty. Maybe not that empty. But nothing really would have happened. They would have made this trip, they would have done the census, and they would have gone home. There would have been no baby for Elizabeth, no baby for Mary at this point, no manger, no shepherds, no excitement, no transformation. And that would have been fine. That's, that's, that's a fine way to live. But here's the thing. In knowing the Lord... There is always the potential for something significant, even in the everyday. And that's the second thought this morning. The Lord uses average people who are humble. The Lord uses average people who are humble. Now, the Lord is not impressed with our personal resumes. And he certainly is not impressed by self-promoters. What, the Lord of all creation and the God of the universe is going to look at, at someone here on earth and go, wow, you made how much to act in that movie? Your CD sold how many copies? Quadruple platinum? That is impressive. You have, you have how many followers on Twitter? I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were so influential. I didn't know you were so important. You, you are amazing. Listen to what the word says about this. Psalm 49, 17. When a rich man dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Psalm 103, 14. The Lord knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. My glory I give to no other. See, it's such a powerful contrast between the average people God uses in amazing ways and the lineup of people who seem powerful but end up in disgrace. 
on one side we have the no-names, okay? The, the people that the Bible tells us are the example of how God can use somebody. You've got Jacob, a person who has to deceive his father to keep the birthright that he steals. And the Lord makes him the father of a great nation. You have Moses, who's a shepherd with a stuttering problem, who's hiding from his past in the desert, and the Lord uses him to lead his people out of slavery as a type of Christ using miracles. You have David, who's a boy who's so overlooked as the youngest member of his family that when the priest comes around to determine who's going to be the king of Israel, that his father doesn't even think about David. We should get David. He just puts up the other sons. And yet, this is the man who became the greatest king of any nation, blessed by God, who Christ came through the line of David. You've got Jonah, a man who was stubborn and scared to people that he talked to people that he didn't like, who eventually went and preached to those people, and they completely repented and turned to the Lord. You got Peter, who was a common fisherman with an angry, impulsive streak. And yet God uses him to become the linchpin of his church and an outspoken evangelist. Just average people, just normal people like you and me. Bible says in James that Elijah was a man just like us, and yet he prayed and God sent rain. Now look at the other side of the ledger. Think of all the famous people just in the last 25 years who have disgraced themselves by thinking that their arrogance and their power entitled them to do whatever they wanted. O.J. Simpson, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Gary Hart, Tiger Woods, John Edwards, Martha Stewart, Lance Armstrong, Mario Batali. I could go on. All of them fell. And it's ironic that in this time of elitism and entitlement and constant self-promotion, that the Lord keeps bringing us back to that principle, that he keeps bringing us back to the fact that he uses ordinary people in mighty ways, people whose hearts are inclined to him, people who love him, people who trust him, people who just want to walk in his will. I didn't hear a lot of the tea on Friday night, but do you remember when Damaris talked about her secular album? She had done these jingles that we know, and, and she thought, and I remember this time in her life, I remember it well, she thought, I really need to, to go pop. And we were like, mm, I don't know, Damaris, I mean, you're really gifted and, and you love the Lord, but she, but she got it in her heart. And, and how many albums did that sell? 10,000? That's nothing. And the Lord showed her at that time that he did not call her to do that. He called her to do what she did Friday night. And think how blessed we were that God took a humble, ordinary person and used her. She didn't stand up here and brag. We had dinner with her Thursday night. She talked about people she's been with, but she wasn't like, hey, when I was hanging out with Nikki Cruz the other night, and when I'm hanging out with Mary Welchel tomorrow, and, and I was hanging out here, she, she wasn't talking about that. She was just talking about how good the Lord is because the Lord's not impressed by arrogance. The Lord is impressed by humility. So why were Joseph and Mary chosen? We're going to get to the next principle in a second. I think it's because they were so humble. Not hesitating, trusting in him, 
ready to go forward, even though it's difficult. It's going to radically change their life. Their faith is going to be challenged and stretched to the edge, and they're going to deal with opposition and skepticism and people talking behind their back and their plans for their lives that they set out. Those are going to be completely altered, but here they are right in the middle of God's plan, blessed beyond imagination, used of the Lord in a mighty way, and we're talking about them today. Because God looked at them and saw their humility. And do you think for a minute that if they had to do it over again, moving from the mundane to what stretched their faith, that they would have said, we wouldn't do it. No way. No way. And that's such an important spiritual principle. And as you write this next thought down, notice the reason for it. Here's the thought. We have to be willing to be stretched. We have to be willing to be stretched. Why? Because the Lord wants to take us to a greater place. Think about their life in Nazareth. I did some research. I've preached this passage, I don't know how many times, but I'd never really, I've been in Nazareth, but I've never really done research on Nazareth. Nazareth was a hole in the wall. It was an insignificant village. At the time of Luke chapter 2, they estimate there were only 100 to 400 people living there. Now that paled in comparison to a nearby town called Sephoris. Sephoris was very affluent. People lived in these luxury villas. There were about 30,000 people there. It was the center of shopping and culture. So you've got Sephoris over here as this beautiful, wonderful, wealthy city, and you've got Nazareth out on the outskirts, a dumpy little town full of farmers and shepherds and laborers. They would walk an hour to Sephoris to try to sell things to the, to the rich people there. And, and Nazareth was so irrelevant and so poor that, that some people actually lived in caves because that's all they could afford. So you've got this little town of Nazareth. That's why when Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the one who's the Savior. We found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel turns to him and says, what good could ever come out of Nazareth? Like, you mean that dumpy little town up by Sephoris? No, no, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. So think about this. For Joseph and Mary to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the place where David was born, the place where David was anointed as king, to have their baby born, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem, as was prophesied, was a huge honor. So they've got the place where they live. Joseph also was a carpenter, which was a reasonable craft. It's respectable. But at the time, in that town, it wasn't really that important. I mean, he's in a little town that has real no meaning. He's in the middle of the road profession that has no room for advancement. And socially, carpenters weren't exactly at the top of the social scale. They were common laborers. So so Joseph's not going up to Sepphoris every day and going, I need to get some big contracts. I'll wine and dine the people up there. I'll be with the elite and I'll really become somebody. He's just a young teenage tradesman finding his way, trying to kind of drum up some new business. Mary's just a teenage girl. She's, She's learning some skills and preparing to be a wife. So to go from that 
to being the earthly parents of the Savior of mankind. That's kind of a step up, right? You're, you're, you're advancing a little bit. And this was a calling that completely changed the direction of their lives. It completely changed how history would look at them. Before they had an average life, nothing wrong with that, just very basic. But now they're called to something unthinkable. They're given huge responsibility. They're used in awesome ways. And how could anything compare to that? Now, let me get down to this. There is absolutely nothing that limits the Lord from working in similar ways in your life and my life. Now, we can't be the caretakers of the Son of God, but we're called to be his children, right? We're called to be his disciples, and we're called to walk in his ways and talk about them. And he can give us unique calling. Listen now, don't dismiss this thought. He can give us a unique calling that has tremendous influence on seeing people's lives changed. And if we affirm that truth in our heart, we need to understand that God is ready to do that. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do or what your situation is or what your past is. If you will trust him completely, he will stretch your faith and will use you in mighty ways. But there's one more real quick truth that goes along with that that requires our faith to be strong. Here it is. Most of the spiritual breakthroughs in our lives come from an alteration of our plans. Well, yeah, Paul, I want the Lord to use me. I'm ready. I'm going to trust him for that, and, and God's going to work me in a mighty way, and, man, that's going to be awesome. Okay, well, just understand that that's probably going to require your plans to change. Joseph and Mary couldn't fulfill the Lord's calling by staying in Nazareth because the Lord wasn't going to accomplish that until they went to Bethlehem because that's what the prophecy says. But even before that, they went through this radical modification of everything they knew, everything that was normal and everything that was easy because that was the only way that the breakthrough was going to happen. Now, we've been on this theme of breakthrough as a church and we're seeing the physical changes. I hope you've been in the nursery and the preschool, the new paint and the new flooring. It's, it's so much nicer. That, that's part of the physical transformation that's taking place. We're adding staff. That's part of the physical transformation. But that really is not the change that the Lord is looking for in us. The change he is looking for starts with a spiritual alteration. Please hear this. This is the end. He wants faith that is bold and unwavering. The Lord wants an entire congregation that is committed to prayer. He wants a church that has a deep love for his word, that has a heart for outreach every single day, that gives sacrificially, that has every person serving, using their gifts, even outside of what's comfortable. And let me tell you, that requires change. It requires moving away from the narrow, tight control that we want to have into a place where we offer ourselves to the Lord and we say, Lord, there are endless possibilities of what you can and will do in my life if I just surrender myself to you. With Mary, Joseph went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, and he went to Judea to the city of David that's called Bethlehem. 
If Jesus wasn't coming, that would have just been a routine trip. But because Jesus came, it completely changed their lives. And let me tell you, the Lord is waiting. He is ready to do that in your life and in my life. And he's ready to do it in this church. He wants to take us to a greater place, but he is looking to see who is willing to trust him.